0: As we have developed our uh, understanding of Jesus' conversation with the disciples, we are well through a list. In fact, we only have one more on this list after this week uh, of prerequisites, if you will, to the promises of God that of his of a effectual prayer life. And... These prerequisites, uh, these conditional statements that Jesus has shared and continues to share, will repeatedly share throughout chapters 14, 15, and 16, we have handled instead of verse by verse, but rather by theme, uh, rather than trying to study all of them at once as we go through. They they are somewhat clustered together, but as you're going to see this morning again, They really run throughout these three chapters, and thus uh, the approach that I'm taking is very different than I've done with the rest of John in doing this thematically, Uh, but we have worked our way through the necessity of uh, belief, that we believe that God is good and is at work in our lives and engaged and involved. A level of belief that is higher than salvific belief, where we are trusting in the work of Christ to deliver us, but now also to sustain us and to do great things among us. The necessity of obedience, which again we're going to readdress today, the need to obey his commands. That that is, if you obey, um, then that is the, the evidence that God is looking for, for genuine faith, and that kind of faith God responds to with answered prayer. We also looked at the necessity to work, to do the works of God in our life. That while we look at sustaining our physical life through physical work, so we need to sustain our spiritual life through spiritual work. That we should be engaged in the works of God, not just in... And when we think about time-wise, it is frightening how much time, of, how much of the week we are committing ourselves to care for our physical needs in comparison to the amount of time we're taking care of our spiritual needs, uh, it is frightening. If you think of well, I, I congratulate myself if I spend ten minutes every morning in God's Word and then go out and spend eight to nine to ten hours um, to support the structure I live in, or the car I drive, etc., or the clothes I wear, and so. We uh, recognize that there is an aspect we should be about his work. We should be ambassadors of his. We'll revisit that next week again. Uh, as I said, these are themes that are reiterated by Jesus Christ throughout this passage. We then looked, of course, at abiding in Him and the necessity of that uh, continuation of, of finding our place, our, our sustenance, our strength in Him, and then the the. The immediate result of abiding in Him should be that we should bear fruit, lasting fruit, eternal fruit. Uh, And we defined all of that. And then last week we talked about the necessity of endurance, that we must stand fast, that we must anticipate that we'll have opposition, that we are prepared to hold our ground against that opposition. But we also took some time last week to define opposition from our perspective, which is very different than it has been historically. And we looked at the prophetic description of that in Daniel, of the wearing out of the saints, not the violent attack upon us, but of the very gradual, very subtle uh, degeneration of the Christian life, that they are just rubbing us a little bit every day, every week, and, and thinning us down and thinning it down and so that our Christian life today is, is, is hardly visible compared to what it was even 100 years ago, or even in my lifetime, 50-some years ago. And so we see this, and this is not just of this generation, but it has been uh, declared by old preachers, for many generations, they saw the difference from when they started in their ministry to when they ended their ministry. That over the course of their 40 years of seeing it, just diminish in spiritual realities in people's lives. And so, you are not just experiencing it through the course of your lifetime, or nor have I just experienced it in the course of my lifetime in my ministry. But I, I am just the latest segment of many generations of pastors that have seen this in this country, that while we do not have open opposition, we have this very subtle wearing down of the saints that Daniel described as the work of the, of the little horn of that last empire that would come and, and uh, the one that would have to be destroyed by Jesus himself that we live in. That this was going to be a very different tactic than the old tactics. And, the, and much of the world is still exposed to the old tactics. And so uh, you go to various places in the country and there's still violence against you. There's still uh, dishonor. There's still uh, uh, dismissal by family members and things if you trust in Christ as your Savior. And so there, they are still experiencing that. And biblically, that is appropriate because they are not within the context of the of the deceitfulness of the little horn uh, or of the of the final beast's head. And so we have to deal with the subtle ones that we need to be alert, and it requires more watchfulness, not less. But we have been lulled to sleep by it, thinking that we have all this religious liberty, and therefore we do not engage ourselves in the warfare for our faith that we should be. And that warfare is real. And Daniel describes it there, and, and largely Satan has been uh, victorious And the testimony of generations of preachers looking out at their society um, and looking out at their churches has testified to that. And so we are called to engage in a spiritual warfare that most of us don't even know is going on. And very interestingly, um, a comment from, I think it was my daughter, that um, even our national warfare is talking to take on that appearance, isn't it? Um, We are at war as a nation, and we don't feel it like we used to. It used to be when a country went to war, World War 1 and World War 2, even the Vietnam and Korean War, we knew it as a nation we were engaged in that it made a difference in our daily life. We understood and other cultures as well, other nations understood that we had to sacrifice at home for that. It meant that we had to have rubber drives and metal drives and and you had to and paper drives and you had to not, you know, use up resources that need to be engaged for warfare, Um, we had rations, and we understood the necessity of fuel rations as well as food rations, and we understood the necessity of that. But in our modern warfare, we don't even feel it hardly. We see it, and even the death tolls we talk about are not comparable to what they were. When we would get lists each day in the newspaper in the hundreds and thousands daily that would die, in these conflicts, Uh, and now we we have them in in sometimes not even a dozen, and and we are uh, insulated from it. That our soldiers are now in rooms controlling drones that are detached from what they're actually doing in these other countries. And so, even our modern warfare has kind of allowed us to take a step away so it doesn't even feel like we're at war. We can sit here and blow things up uh, during the day and then go home with our family and sleep in our own beds with our own family at night. Because we've done it all remotely and electronically. In many ways, our spiritual warfare has is, is been doing that for uh, <laughs> well over a century, uh, probably two centuries here in this country. Or we have been detached from it and not recognizing it. So we talked about all of that last week. And we saw the necessity of being alert. That we need to be on the ball and recognize that this is what's going on in our country. That we are under assault and don't know it. And the danger that that is in. In fact, that is the best time to attack your enemy, isn't it? When they're asleep when they're asleep, when they're incapacitated by their own choice. This is when you can do the most damage. And so Satan has a free hand because most of us aren't even alert to it because no one's talking about that. And this is the danger point. And we're going to revisit that a little bit next week as well. Let's press on into today's requirement. What does it take for me to have an active, vital, effectual prayer life, what are the prereqs of Jesus' statement? Ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. What are the prerequisites? And we've listed off those ones we've already studied. Believe, obey, work, abide in him, bear fruit, and endure. Well, now we come to one that really falls under the second category, but Jesus Christ pulls it out and emphasizes it, and John pulls it out and emphasizes it. Let's turn with me in the Gospel of John. Chapter 15, again, and we're going to jump right in and uh, verse 9 and find very quickly. And then we're going to go into 1 John. This is a mega theme for all of John's writing. So whenever John is writing, he's always going to write about this theme. And you already know that because you know some of John's writings. We're going to talk about that shortly. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. There it is. These things I command you that you love one another. And so we have this directive and of course we see it wrapped up in the idea of abiding in Christ and so it's not detached from that, it is enveloping that. We also see it in the concept of obeying my commands and there it is. Uh, And so we find it's also tied to bearing fruit. So this idea of loving one another as a requirement, as a prerequisite, you cannot have a good prayer life if you do not love one another in fact John is, goes even farther than that he goes even a step beyond that not only are you not going to have good praying going on in your life effectual praying where God answers that prayer boom 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 whatever you ask I'll give you not yes no wait but yes 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 and Paul and Corinthians says all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ Now, some have taken that and abused that because they have have separated that concept, the promises, from the conditions of the promise. Remember that your salvation is conditional, correct? Are all men saved because Jesus died? No. The only people that are saved are those who accept his gift. You have to respond to his provision by faith, trusting in Jesus Christ. The only ones who are actually saved, even though there's enough substantial provision for all men to be saved, the only ones who are actually saved are those who accept that gift and make it their own. You have a place in this equation of salvation. You have to take what God provided and make it your own. And if you don't do that, it does you no good. It's like me serving up a meal, setting it in front of you, and with fork and knife and plate hot food, delicious food, drink everything there, and you sitting there with your hands in your pocket. Well, the food has been prepared, but until you pick it up and put it in your mouth, chew it and swallow it, it does you no good. In fact, it might even make you more hungry because it smells so good. Right? And so knowing about God's salvation and not partaking of it it makes it worse. You can smell how good it is, but it's not doing you any good because you haven't accepted and this and the same is true here with the, with the promises of answered prayer. God says I have the power, I have the, I have the means I, I have the desire to answer your prayers, but you're going to have to meet these conditions, just like you have to trust in my son and repent of your repent and believe. To be saved, so you have to, and he's given out, all these if statements. If you obey my commands, if you believe, if you do the works, if you abide in me, if you bear fruit, and now, and if you endure now, if you love one another. And so this is a condition of of your prayer life. And if that's not there in your life, then guess what? Your prayers are ineffectual. Let's go to 1 John. This is the Gospel of John. Let's turn to 1 John. I want you to see how John takes it a step further. He goes even further, saying, not only is it going to affect your prayers, it's even more substantial now. Let's go to 1 John. We're going to start off in verse 3. In 1 John 3.11, it says, "...for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another." Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. How do you know that you are in the light, that you are alive spiritually, is when you love the brethren? He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no, mur- no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, because he laid down his life for us, we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. For whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need shuts up his heart from him. How does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment. We should believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and we should love one another as he gave us commandment. We can go on and read into chapter four. Um, Oh, let's just do it because it's just too much fun. It's a lot better than anything I have to say. Let's jump into chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifest towards us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Jump down to verse 17. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him. Because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. And it goes on into chapter 5. Do you get the picture? It's a major, major, major theme for John in all of his writings. He is not only saying that your prayer life is dependent upon loving one another, so is your very confidence in your salvation. How do I know I am a child of God? Well, one of the mechanisms, one of the evidences, is that you love one another. Wait till I get your attention here. So what is that? What does it look like? Well, we don't just go around saying, "We love I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you." John makes that very clear. To love in word is an easy thing. To love by writing it down is an easy thing. Now there are those, they talk about the love languages and I don't really, I don't know what they all are and I haven't read the book and I don't really need to because I have this book (laughs) that tells me all about God's love language. So what is the evidence that God loved us? What is the evidence that God loved us? He sent his son to suffer and die in our place, to sacrifice himself to cover our sin. Not because we were friendly towards him and got along with him, but even when we were his enemies, we hated on him. We despised and rejected him. We took his son and crucified him. That's what our condition of our heart. And yet God loved us, not because we were lovable, we were unlovable. God loved the unlovable and sacrificed himself for them. So we are not talking about getting along with people that you already get along with, that you like, that you can feel good around because you have similar interests, because you have similar personalities. Oh, that's the world can do that. Getting along with people on those basis is easy. But when we come to a biblical concept of love, it is best measured not by those that are look like you, act like you, um, and think like you. It is actually measured by those that are very different from you. And that's what is so amazing, supposed to be so amazing about church. Unfortunately, our churches have too often segmented themselves into little clusters of people who look alike, talk alike, sound alike, and think alike. And I love this right now, because i got Filipino, i got Native American, I, Andrea's not and here to cover our Puerto Rican section of things. We even have Germans here getting along with Britons. I figure that one out. And, and they can't get along in the world right now, and, you know, some of you Germans, you know, of course, I, I'm part of that, so. Um, this is what it should look like. That we love one another not because uh, we look alike, not because we sound alike, not because our personalities are alike, not because we have exact same interests, but because Jesus Christ has transcended all of that. And we all come together and we say, we are all sinners saved by the grace of God and his sacrifice for us because he loved me when I hated him and died for me when I despised him. I have that kind of love for people who hate me. Wow, I have enough love for these people who hate me to give of myself, not just say I love, oh, we love everybody. No, that's easy to say. It's a whole other thing when they're front yard shooting up the house and, and you're trying to pray for them, love them, and share the gospel with them. And that's what's going on in this neighborhood, okay? If you didn't notice this week, that's right over here in 98th Street. A couple blocks, this is 86, so that happened on 98th Street over here this week. And we're just shooting each other's houses. And do we love enough to care about these people who hate? And hate defines them. Because all it does is point out differences. What we look at is we are all sinners, saved by grace. And so hate isn't part of our thinking, of our economy, of the Christian life. And so this is the calling card, is that our churches love one another, that our people within our church love one another. Um, Does that that mean that we all like each other? Not necessarily. Okay, I know that that's startling to you. Um, There are people that I don't like that I love. Sometimes it's my wife. Okay, sometimes I like her a lot. And so <laughs> it's kind of funny because this week she said, she's like, in fact, it was just last night. Uh, she, she says, now she hasn't asked me if I love her. She said, Do you like me today? <laughs> Why? Because we'd understand the difference. Like just means that we're simpatico, we're the same mind, and we the, are going in the same direction and we're enjoying it. And my love is not dependent upon that. So What kind of love is that? It's a love that we only get from God. That I can love people that I don't even like today. Well, What does that mean? Okay, and by the way, I'm going to talk to men a little bit today just uh, as a side light because God's word commands you to love your wife, to love her as your own body. Um, The wife is not commanded to love her husband. The wife is commanded to submit to her husband to give him the honor that is there the husbands commanded a couple things, love your wife and dwell with her, understanding her, which is kind of funny because the world says you can't figure out women, but that is your job is to understand your wife, to know how she thinks, how she functions, and how she's going to respond and what her needs are. That's your job in the relationship and to love her. Those are the two things. So you're supposed to love your wife. And so wives are like, Come to me, boy, I don't my, my husband doesn't love me. And, or and come, I've, not, I've fallen out of love with her. And I just like. I said, Well, you're communicating three things to me. Number one is that you don't understand what love is. Number two is that you don't have a relationship with God. And number three is that you're just a selfish person. That's the only way you fall out of love with somebody. You don't have a relationship with God. You are not. Uh, You don't understand what love is. You don't define it. And you're a selfish person. You only love yourself. Let me share with you something, wives. You want your husbands to love you more? They need to work on their relationship with God. Because if they fully grasp and engage and involve themselves and envelop themselves in the love, if they abide in his love, they will love not only you better, but everyone better. They will love the brethren, certainly, enough to give their lives for them, and you are among them, Lord willing. So, men, you want to love your wives better? Well, I'm not going to tell you, you know, here's the 40 things you need to do for your wife for the next six weeks. Um, that can work, and that will change your feelings, but that's still not addressing spiritual issue. Well, if you want to really develop your love for your wife, you develop your love for God. Get that spiritual love rectified between you and God, and loving your spouse will not be a problem. Loving your children will not be a problem. Loving your pastor will not be as big a problem. It'll still be a problem, but it won't be as big a one. And loving each other in this church will not be a problem. And loving even people who hate you will not be uh, as big a problem. You're not going to want to do violence to them. Even though they spit at you, call you names, fire you, get you in trouble, tattle on you. We'll get it down to the family, okay? Um, And all those things, I can still love those who hate me. And that's why, how can a husband love a wife that doesn't reciprocate? Well, that's because he's discovered the love of God. Because God loved you without your reciprocation at all. You hated him, and he loved you. Not in words, not by just saying I love you. What does it do? John has gone, and Jesus, Jesus in his conversation, and John uh, repeating that and developing that in his ministry to the churches talks about what is the greatest exercise of loving someone is sacrificing yourself. Now we'd all like to believe that if someone walked in the room with a knife and held it to my throat and said curse God or die that I would refuse to curse God and let him slip my throat and you'd say man that guy really loved God. And you're right that would be a great evidence of that and, um, uh, and, and hopefully we would in- hold our ground and do that even if if I was the 18th person in, in a row of people and there's dead bodies and blood laying around me that I'm still willing to not curse God knowing that I will be the next one to die. And we think, well, that's real love for God. Um, but John, Jesus, both take this to a place you don't want to go and that is that we lay down our lives for each other. That there is no part of my living that isn't available for your well-being. This is what a husband is promising his wife when we take those vows. To love her. I promise to love you till death do us part. There is no aspect of my being that is not at your disposal for your well-being. And to help us understand that, both Jesus and John take us even to a, a scarier step than giving your life. (laughs) Here's what John says. Um, If your brother has needs and you have worldly goods, are you willing to share? Oh, now this is getting ridiculous now, Pastor. I'm willing to give my life for you. Well, that's easy to say because nobody's asking for it. But what about your worldly goods and you see a brother in need? Are you going to do something about it? And here in 1 John 3, it says, Whoever has this world's goods, sees his brother in need, and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? And this is how we love in deeds and in truth, rather than in word or in tongue is that we open up our lives and we say, there is no resource that is under my control that isn't available to minister to your well-being. None. In the Spanish community, we have a great saying that, uh, notice I said we and not they, Uh, we have a great saying, I've been in New Mexico for a long time, all my kids but one were born here. So, um, we have a great saying, mi casa su casa. My house is your house. Try it out sometime. Walk down the neighborhood. <laughs> hey, I'd like to sleep here tonight. Casas <laughs> uh, no su casa <laughs> anymore. No, no. <laughs> When he talks about brethren, he's not talking about the world. And the just said, in the world, you will always have the poor. You will always have those that abuse those opportunities and will take advantage of Christian hospitality and generosity. And we take great pains, I take great pains to filter that out, to see if there's a genuine need and, or just a, a claim of a need. And we all know that many of the people out there uh, asking for handouts just aren't willing to work. Uh, that it's not a matter that they can't. Um, and so we're careful in that regard. But we're talking about among the brethren, which means within the context of our local church. And maybe even beyond that, to other people we have encountered who are our believers. And we know they're believers by their testimony, by their declaration, by their lives. And so when I encounter these kinds of individuals. One of the things I did, and I marvel at a church like this that sent me to the Philippines to find them. Go find some people with real needs because we all know that here in this country we are all very wealthy. Even the poorest among us. Our homeless people have more access to goods and services and things than 90% of the rest of the world's population. Yes, our homeless people are wealthier Than most Haitians, than most people in India, than most people in Central African countries. Our brethren, my my friend Cyrus lives in a mud house of two rooms with a thatch roof. That's his dwelling place permanently, not temporarily till he gets a permanent place. That's it. When it rains too hard, his house washes away. That's the reality of how they live outside of Nairobi, in western Kenya. And so when we look at wealth, we are those with worldly goods, and it says, you want to really measure your wealth? And Jesus Christ did this, right? To the rich young ruler who came to him, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus Christ says, well, you obey the commands. Oh, I've done those since I was youth. He says, oh, and he looked into him and says, oh, I know what's special to you. Let's tap what you really love in your life. He says, uh, go, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. And the man went away sorrowful because he had much of this world. And he was attached to it in a few weeks, you're going to be sending me to India and to the Philippines. And I've prepared my messages. I have, in the process of preparing my messages for that trip. And one of the passages that I have focused in on is Luke. And it says that when you've obeyed all of the commands of your master, which is God, uh, that your reaction to when you've Finish the day you have obeyed all of his commands. Here's your response. I'm an unprofitable servant. I've only done what is my duty to do. We're going to study that a little bit tonight as well. Um, I've only done what my duty. I'm an unprofitable servant. We have been, from the world's eyes, very generous to these to help them in their ministries from this very small church. I think many of them are shocked when they come here and realize how small we are in number. But God is great. <laughs> in resources, that he has entrusted to this very small church. And so I get to go there, and I fearfully go there because I don't really appreciate the applause of men. I don't like it. Uh, it, They're robbing me if they want to applaud the generosity of this church because we don't do this for that. We do this because we love God. God has loved us, and we're doing it as a service of love to them and to him. And so why do we engage ourselves? Why did you send me to the Philippines? That conference was to find people who had true needs that we could engage ourselves with and involve ourselves in. And I'm not just talking about a 50 50 here and there or 100 here and there. I mean, you have committed thousands, tens of thousands of dollars to these people. You've put your money where your mouth is. You haven't just said you love them. You've shown that you love them. And I just want to press this and encourage you that this is real Christianity. This is the kind of Christianity that when you live this way, with this kind of a, of a love for your brethren, whether they are near or far, that this is the kind God responds to and says, you pray and we will answer that prayer. I will answer that prayer. God will answer that prayer. When you live like this, and, uh, uh, and chief among these, not only to believe, but to, uh, to abide, to work, to obey, to bear fruit, is to love one another. of all the things that Israel could have been taken to task for by God before he sent them into exile, this is the one thing the prophets keep coming back to over and over and over again, is that here in the country of Israel, um, back in the Old Testament, what was it? They abused their widows and their orphans. their fatherless. They neglected them. They did not show them that out of their goods, they could care for them. And God says, I'm going to judge you for that. If God judges his people, the nation of Israel, for neglecting the widows and fatherless, how can, he not, how can we not expect him to function on the same principle in our churches? That if we are neglectful of those in need, how can we possibly think that we have a right to go to God and ask him for more stuff? To ask him for better health? to ask him for anything because you only spend it on ourselves on our own interests on our own comforts. God isn't wanting to bless you. He is ready to curse you if you're neglecting the widows, the orphans, the poor among you. And you're, that's a, a form of injustice that God hates. Now, does he also teach if a man doesn't work, neither should he eat? Yes. Where's the discerning level? It's invested in the church to have discernment in love. I can tell difference between an able-bodied person and a widow. Can you? I can. I can discern that. I hope you can distinguish between someone who is capable of work and someone who chooses not to work. My brother-in-law. Suffered a horrible accident when he was a young man. He was in a tree and got hit by power lines while he was in the tree. And uh, was in the hospital for an extended period of time. Jim. Uh, and uh, had severe burning and, and uh, electrical burns through his back. And has lots of scars. And has had trouble all of his life. And, uh, but he wouldn't let it stop. So this is when he was still in school. A young man. Child almost, a little bit more than that, but very young. Uh, And he's older than my wife and I. He's still alive. He's worked hard. You know what kind of work he went into? Construction work. He builds kitchens, Jim's custom kitchens in Ohio. That's hard labor. Run the whole business, ran the whole business. Installing kitchens, building cabinets, custom cabinets. All of that. And I remember being there once, I think when we were on furlough once, we were back there for a year, and I went into a shop and and there was a guy coming that was delivering some materials, and the guy was complaining. He didn't want to unload his own truck. He was gonna make Jim, the owner of the company, unload his truck. Cause oh, I'm a little sore today. Well, Jim is sore every day. So Jim is starting to unload the truck, and the guy just keeps complaining, complaining, won't even help Jim. I started helping him. And so we're unloading the truck, and finally Jim just started tearing into that guy. The truck was almost done. He should have done it at the beginning. But he started tearing into this guy, and he took off his shirt, turned around and says, this is a bad back. And the guy about gasped and fell over. You see, we can be that way, can't we? We can get so self-centered that we don't think, I need to contribute so that I can minister to others. And so I can, I can tell the difference between those who choose not to work, and the American way is the lazy way, right? Work smarter, not harder. That's our motto, correct? And then we go to the gym to sweat because we're getting fat working smarter, not harder. Right? So we pay money to work. Smarter, not harder. Then we pay money to go sweat, which we could have done by working harder, not smarter. So that's why you see me in my garden with a hoe and a shovel and working hard and hauling stuff by hand and a wheelbarrow. I I work hard. And I'm still this fat. (laughs) i still got this paunch right here. Oh, we have so much wealth. Do we love one another to give of ourselves all that we are, all that we have, as a resource to minister one to another. Not that we would go hungry, that others would have too much. That's what Paul dealt with in Corinthians. He says, no, but there would just be equality. This is not socialism we're talking about, uh, where I'm going to let people not work and take from the rich, give to the poor, but I'm going to rather see that here are That we have economic justice by the, not by force, but by choice of those who love each other. And guess what? If I'm a recipient of that, and i got to tell you, this is the spirit that I'm going to encounter. I know I'm going to encounter in India. I know I'm going to encounter, especially in the Philippines when I go there, is this is their spirit. You've done so much for us. It makes us want to work that much harder, and that's what they're doing there. And I want you to know that this is how this church got started. Why do we have such a desire to help other churches? Because a church in outside of Washington, D.C., in Virginia, sent us $100,000 to buy this property. No papers were signed. No interest was paid. They said, pay it back when you can, how you can. And that put in me an understanding of what biblical love about making all of my worldly goods available to someone else Now we are in the position of having those kind of funds, and obviously we could grow quite a bit before we need to spend any of that building another building. So we're going to put those resources to work, whether it be to care for each other, to care for our brethren in the Philippines, in Rwanda, who don't have any churches, because the government shut them all down until you get them up to code. And it's horrible that there's only one that has been brought up to code since that's been revealed a year and a half ago. Almost two years now, it'll be two years of March. Two years ago, and it was the one you built. Well, you funded it, they built it. Remember the little guy with the bricks on his head, Adobe Block, you know, little eight-year-old walking with Adobe Block on his head? They worked hard. They couldn't afford the block. We can afford the block, but they can put their hard labor into it. You're motivating. And so when we talk about the love of God for one another, this is the evidence that God waits for. And God wants to respond to that as soon as he sees that kind of love. He says, how can I not help but bless you to answer your prayers, to give you what you ask? And so we need to persist in that. We can't just sit back in our consciousness, well, we've done so much well, already some time for someone else to do it. I hate it when old people said that. I've committed myself never to say that as an old person. Time for me to relax and let the young ones do something. And then we lose all the wisdom of those old people that should be working as deacons in the church and pastors. So I'm not retiring. Get used to me. I'm smiling for all of you on the podcast, so. <laughs> when we look at our position, it is everything is going to be poured out for the well-being of the family of God. Not, and so if I say with my mouth, I am willing to give my life for the brethren, and Paul says that, and he backs it up, and that's why he gets stoned almost to death, or maybe to death, he gets resurrected. He'd been he's been stoned. He's been whipped and beaten. He's been shipwrecked. All those things he lists off, he says, I'd, I'd gladly do it again. In fact, he says, I'd even trade my eternal salvation if all Israel would be saved out of the result. But that's not the reality of what would happen. It's not how God's economy works. He wants to respond. So we don't sit back and say, we've done enough. It's time for some other church to do it. We say, God, what's next? For us to do? How can we keep showing love one to another? How do I keep making my resources available? How do I keep making mikasa sukasa? How do I sustain that? Not out of necessity for because I'm being forced to do that by pastor or some social system, but rather because I'm driven by the love of God to find those with genuine needs and to seek as much as God has resourced me to meet those needs. And when that is being accomplished, something wondrous happens. God says, I will meet all your needs according to my riches in Christ Jesus. That was out of Philippians. What was that? That was in response to a Philippian church that says, we're going to help you, Paul. We're going to pay all your bills. We're going to send you this. And Paul says, thank you very much. This is credited to your heavenly account, and my God will meet all your needs, according to his riches in Christ Jesus. What was the condition of that verse we all know so well? We don't know the verses before it, where it says, you have generously given to me time and again. You have shown love to me now I'm going to call down God from heaven to witness this and to say, he will meet all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Now let the riches of Christ be poured out in your life. And maybe the reason we have such spiritual littleness in our churches, so weak praying and answers to prayer in our churches is because we are such stingy Christians. Not only with our material resources, but with our spiritual resources. Frankly, we don't ask for much anymore because we've been disciplined not to because we don't want to pay the price. The price is, I have to love you more than I love my house. I have to love you more than I love my car. I have to love you more than I love my retirement account. I have to love you more than my closet of clothes. Most of us don't want to pay that price for the blessing of God. But when I have abiding in the love of Christ, this is the natural expression of it. When a husband is abiding in the love of Christ, he will naturally give up anything and everything for the well-being of his wife. And it will be his joy to do it because he loves her. Why does he love her like that? Because the love of God is abiding in him and he is abiding in Christ's love. And so this isn't out of a vacuum that suddenly I have to decide to love my wife more, I have to decide to love other people. No, this is, if you're trying to manufacture this, you're looking at this whole thing wrong. You can't manufacture loving one another. That's the whole force of what John is saying. What Jesus is saying is that if you abide in my love, if that's a reality in you, the love of Christ is really in you, then it must of necessity flow outward. To not do so is evil. And God will not bless that. And in fact, you are in danger of being cut off by God. I loved you this much, and now this is how you maltreat and hate everyone else that I love? How does that work? No, you get cut off. And so, what do we want for our Christian life? What do we want for our church? We want God's blessing on us. What does it demand of us? That we abide in His love. What is the evidence that we're abiding in His love? That we love one another unconditionally sacrificially we understand what real love is about we're prepared to pay the price but we also know that we have a witness and that witness is God himself that we have an expectation and my praying has changed i don't pray for more stuff i pray to help more people lord give us the resources to help more churches to help more people to care for more orphans to to meet more needs. I have plenty. I have too much. See? Look at, I have like 15 suits. I only wear them like three times a year each. Because I don't wear them during the summer, you know. I have plenty. Lord, I don't need more. So what do my prayer requests sound like? Lord, help me to meet others' needs. What is my prayer as a husband? Lord, help me to meet my wife's needs. Because I love her. Give me the wisdom and the understanding to meet her needs. Give me not feelings for her, Feelings are irrelevant. They, they wander all over the place. They're based upon whether you've eaten lately or not, okay? And what you've eaten lately and how you've slept and what kind of day you had at work. Feelings are, are nothing reliable. They can be manipulated at the drop of a hat. Help me love her. It transcends feelings. I'm going to sacrifice anything and everything. How can I meet her needs today? Because that's the priority of my life. Why? That's a very unnatural thing. Most men love their wives very selfishly for what they can get out of it, out of her. Not what they can give. How do you love sacrificially in that manner? It really is born out of a love of God for you. And that you've truly tasted of that. Grown in that and now want to reflect that. Oh, let it be so in our homes. Let it be so in our church. And let it be from this church just exuding love for our brethren, where'er they be. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us that sacrificed. We thank you for your son's love for us that moved him to obey You, and give his life for our sins. Lord, we strive by spending time in your word to abide, to dwell, to to stay in your love. Help us where we have failed to do that. We see the evidences of in our life when we don't love those around us, when we become selfish, that this is a spiritual problem between you and us not between us and other people primarily. Lord, I pray for our husbands here that they might grow spiritually and those that are not here that we miss today. Lord, help them to grow, to recognize their need to abide in your love and to walk in that, to keep your commandments, to bear fruit in their life, spiritual fruit in their life, to do your work, to trust in you, to endure in their walk with you that they might have the love of Christ in their heart and in their life, that they might then be able to love not only their wives and children, but also their brothers within this church and within your universal church. To even love those who hate us and persecute us and want us to do all sorts of evil, want us to abandon righteousness and holiness and compromise again and again and again. Lord, give us backbones that are built out of vertebrae of love for you, for one another, and then even for the world that hates us. Lord, help it to transcend our likes. Anyone can love who they like. Lord, help us to love those that we don't always like with the true biblical love to lay down our lives for our friends. Thank you for calling us your friends, those who trust in you, follow your commands. For we know that you will do anything for us because of your great love for us. And thus we can have such a powerful prayer life. Lord, we thank you for that. We have already seen evidence of that here of late. We thank you for answers to prayer. and Lord, perhaps the sad thing is that we're sometimes shocked by it, because we're not accustomed to it. Lord, help us to have a confidence not only in our salvation, but in our prayers and in you. As we Step up to try to meet your requirements. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.